0: Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber, I'm your host at EmergencyBod, Dr. Farbod, and my guest this week is the incredible Dr. Salia Hassan. We have a wide-ranging discussion that went on for quite a while, so we split the conversation up into two parts to make it more easily digestible. I hope you enjoy part one with Dr. Hassan as much as I did, part two will be following shortly.
1: Hello and welcome to the echo chamber. Uh, my guest this week is Dr. Salia Assan, a um, stalwart on their Twitter and someone with a very interesting background. Um, Salia, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, so I'm a bit of a, a hybrid across different areas. So I'm a EM middle grade, uh, currently waiting to work out what my next placement or job is. Um, I'm doing a PhD at Cambridge uh, looking at the uh, patient related outcomes when you have attacks against healthcare in armed conflict. Um, So essentially we know that bombing hospitals and killing doctors is a bad thing. I'm trying to quantify that and how it impacts patients. And um, I'm also a, a freelance journalist and broadcaster and the thing that came first was journalism. I left. Um, I left. Well, I was a journalist first, and then retrained to be a doctor as well.
1: Oh, that's excellent. Well, you you are um, always fascinated when I'm speaking to people on this podcast so far about how interesting their lives are compared to my own. Um, so I'm. I feel very privileged being able to speak to people like yourself. Um, but, Sally, if you don't mind, what we'll do is I just want to take a few minutes to address the elephant in the room. Um, and I use that term specifically because in Farsi, the language uh, that I speak my mother tongue, the language of Iran, yeah. elephant is actually Phil. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about uh, Dr. Philip Lee, uh, who is, I don't know if you're aware of him, but he's a geriatrician who's got quite a sizable following on Twitter yeah and uh there was an incident that occurred yesterday which I think struck a chord with quite a few people on the med twitterverse and this being a med twitter podcast I think it'd probably be remiss of us to um ignore it without mentioning it at all um now when you first came on obviously in the um, Bit before we started recording I brought this up and you weren't aware of what happened so
2: no, okay. because I do, the- yeah I I, I, I do I sometimes yeah. like I just have to have a social media break and it just happened last night and i yeah. I know you're going think- to talk about it but I'm I'm still digesting it and I'm shocked
1: yeah yeah so for those of you who may not know um essentially what happened was um Dr. Lee You know, he's quite prolific on Twitter. I hope to have him on this podcast at some point um, going forward as well. Um, But we'll have to wait and see about that. Basically, Dr. Lee, a very funny guy, usually on Twitter, and you you know, has a role that he has played within this pandemic period as well as a doctor, uses public transport, put out a tweet talking about people needing to cover, and I think the term he uses, the disease spreading face holes, because essentially he was on public transport and he was making a comment that 50% of the public that were there weren't wearing masks uh, on public transport. And this is obviously on the context of raising uh, cases of COVID um, and, you know, in the context of him being a geriatrician over the last 18 months, two years, uh, during, you know, a global pandemic of a respiratory virus. This then was uh, screenshotted and retweeted um, with an app to GMC, the General Medical Council of the UK, uh, essentially arguing that uh, by this person, who I won't won't name the names, I'm not going to put any of the uh, details out there because I don't think it's really fair, but I just want to explain the context of what happened. Is that he put this out there saying this is an unprofessional uh tweet what do you think gmc i'm paraphrasing and that wasn't the issue the issue really was the thing that really i think upset people was it seemed like the gmc social media person whoever it was responded with what looked like a kind of copy and paste response saying oh if you have an issue please raise your complaint and provided the link to the um, Raising Concerns page on the GMC. And I think a lot of people um, became irate about this. And kind of, there's lots of people saying that we're all Philip Lee, you know, doing the I am Spartacus thing, saying I am Philip Lee, we're all healthcare workers, we should be allowed to say people should be following the nationally recognised... Guidance that's been put out there by our seniors, and you know, in the way you know, in in the context of a global pandemic, and doing so should not be um, an issue that should be picked up. And I think this was really compounded by the fact that the 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 person in question, the person who started this all off with the screen grab, seemed to have, when you actually look at their Twitter feed, seemed to have very right retweeting people who are known to be involved with right-wing racist organizations white supremacy so on and so forth and it just it I think it was the timing and the context really that affected people more than anything else Um, and I know when I mentioned this to you Salia you had quite a reaction as well how did this make you feel when I first mentioned it to you
2: I'm so, uh, you know, first of all, I'm just so sad and sorry to uh, Dr Philip Lee. I, I understand he's left Twitter. I don't, I don't, I cannot imagine um, how he must be feeling, um, kind of how let down, really. Um, I, it's going to take me a while to process this. I can, I can, really understand where the sentiment of his uh, tweet came from Mm -hmm. um, um, and what would have spurred it Um, and yet uh, the person that put the tweet out against him with their track record Mm -hmm. um, absolutely you know fill your boots, go ahead and follow the process. Okay the person from the GMC may well not have realised who this other person was but I I wonder if they would have taken the time to look them up I would be hmm. curious.
1: Well, perhaps that's something that the GMC will need to reflect on. Um, and this obviously comes in the wake. And I don't. And I don't know if you're aware of this. There was a uh, employment tribunal judgment that was put out uh, on the June on June the seventeenth this year. So only, well, not even two weeks ago now, uh, revolving around the case of a consultant urological surgeon and I believe the GMC are actually contesting the findings of the tribunal. Um, So I won't go into the facts of the case um, in in particular but there were some bits and pieces that came out with the judgments, uh, the conclusions of the tribunal which I'll read a few points out Um, and uh, I mean it's pretty damning when you read it. So though the GMC argued that this surgeon lacked credibility, the tribunal rejected this offensive suggestion. The tribunal found that he was honest and credible. That's the first point in the conclusions. It says there was less favorable treatment of this surgeon um, when compared to a white doctor that had similar allegations against them. The GMC continued the investigation against this surgeon where the investigation into the white doctor was terminated and referred back to the trust. The employment tribunal stated that they were not able to accept the explanations provided by the GMC for the difference in treatment between this surgeon and the white doctor, such as to show that the claimant's race did not form part of their considerations. The tribunal also expressed the fact that it was concerned about the level of complacency shown by the GMC about the possibility of the operation of discrimination in the referral made by the trust to the GMC. Mm-hmm. There's a four-year delay, which they said was unnecessary. Um, and then it goes into some of the uh, stats into, uh, that they used uh, to back up their case. And basically, it was talking about how minority ethnic doctors are 29% of all UK doctors, but 42% of complaints by employers are made against minority ethnic doctors. UK graduate minority ethnic doctors are 50 percent more likely to get a sanction or warning than white doctors and then it goes on to say other evidence illustrated the adverse position of minority ethnic doctors when compared to white doctors um do you have any comments on those points that have been brought up by the tribunal from less than two weeks ago
2: i'm just i'm so sad i mean i am i'm not normally lost for words i'm really sad, really disappointed, and yeah, feel vulnerable, because mm. I'm an ethnic minority doctor, um, and I, you know, the other day I w- I went on um, sometimes every now and again I get asked to go on uh, a breakfast program to talk about uh, what's going on in the news, and I had to go on and speak about Dido Harding's Mm. uh, promise, if you like, to um, make sure and
1: reliance on foreign doctors.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I just thought that's going to be that's just going to be adding fuel to the fire. Mm -hmm. Uh, Already on Med Twitter, you you read about people who are having rather difficult times at work. um, Cases where patients are only are asking to only see white doctors and in some cases where hospitals are actually even facilitating that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in patients that are um, recurrent, you know, who, who need um, frequent visits and attention. And I, 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 you know, the direction of travel of this is really not pleasant at all. I, I, mean, I, Again, my heart goes out to the consultant that has been at the bottom of this because you know, these are these are not easy things to navigate no. for anyone in any section of society. But when you are working in a place where your remit is that you are there doing the job because you want to make people better and you want to help people, and yet you are being penalised for it, you're not being supported for it, you're being discriminated against, uh, you know, it's like you're, your life's work is being disregarded, and you're being disrespected as a human being. And you know when you know what it's like for, but you know you go to hospital. So it's almost like our second family. It really mm-hmm. is. You know your trusted colleagues. Your your the people that you spend hours and hours mm-hmm. with some probably some of one of not just the patient's worst worst days but maybe some of your own really stressful m- most mm-hmm. stressful days. And you know you want to think that you're as solid you know as can be as a team but this just really, really mm-hmm. shakes the ground. It really does.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and it makes you sometimes think, why bother?
1: yeah it is it is difficult and i actually i think about race in medicine quite a lot and i think some people who don't really appreciate it um, don't realize that if you are a minority ethnic doctor that you are reminded of the fact that you are different every day and it's you know you can on some days it's easier to just put it to one side and forget and other days it comes into um, stark contrast and uh, you can't ignore it and I've always said that these are things that basically if you speak to pretty much any minority ethnic doctor they will give you plenty of stories about what's happened Um, and and I've always said that it's not really the actions of the racist that affects us at work Because, you know, it's part and parcel of what what it is to be a minority ethnic person that you have to occasionally deal with these kinds of things. The the response that we get from our colleagues is what determines our feelings towards the incident. And Mm. if we are supported, if we are backed up, if our colleagues... um, you know, stand beside us and essentially advocate for us in these situations um, then you know it, it, that's affirming, that makes you feel a part of something, it, it reinforces loyalty. But if those same colleagues are dismissive or um, try to minimise what has happened, or to tell you to forget about it, or things like that, or put up barriers towards any kind of potential um, repercussions uh, wow. for whatever whoever it was that did it, then that can be devastating, can be soul destroying.
2: Absolutely. Um, I mean, I like I I I'm just so I I'm, my heart goes out to the surgeon involved. Hmm that's four years of his life you know um and the stress and the pressure of this and going to an employment tribunal you know, uh, employment tribunal that way is not an easy thing um
1: yeah absolutely and um, like i said um to be fair uh the gmc have contested the um, findings i don't know if it in in its entirety or in part but they have said that they have contested the findings and they will be um, seeing what happens next so that 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 case will rumble on mm-hmm. um, however i think in the, the the stats speak for themselves and obviously other high profile cases um dr barwagada um, yeah. Uh, being one very high profile example of many years uh, of recent years uh, is it it just it just keeps seeming to paint a pattern uh, which is very difficult to ignore um, when you are a minority ethnic person working in this country and again I understand the role of the GMC the GMC isn't there to be our friend Uh, it is there to maintain the highest standards that are possible for a professional body uh, and a professional group of people. Um, however, in doing that, you expect certain <clears throat> kind of moral standards as well. As in, you know, justice is meant to be blind and cold. It is not meant to be take any kind of bias or prejudice. And yet, the stats do not seem to bear that out.
2: Yeah. Anyway.
0: Um, <laughs>
2: the wider issue as well Mm. you know Mm. what's going on at ground level Mm. it goes up to there you know you know interestingly enough I've always said because actually before I did medicine I was in the army for four years Mm. um, and I was a reservist for five years before that Um, so I went through Sandhurst twice once on the reserve course and then the second one time was on the year-long course the army for all its You know, you know, uh, reputation, etc., on race, whatever it was, possibly out of all the things I do, both within the media and medicine and the military, the military was out of all of my um portfolio careers, um, was the place where I felt more accepted than anywhere else because it was all to do with can I pass this test and can I. Can I run this distance, carry that pack and do all of that within that set time. If you can and you do it well, you're sorted, that's it, you're in. Uh, everything else in other sectors, in other you know areas of society, other places I've worked, there are no clear cut things, no clear cut sort of uh, lines in that way. Um, it was only I think when I left the army that, and I started as a medical student that I thought, Crikey, I didn't know it was like this.
1: Mm. Yeah, um, well, I think that I think you said it all. Really, um, it's it's disappointing. I think the, the the term I would give it is I um, I'm not. I was very angry last night, mm. and going back to another elephant um, analogy, I think last night I was probably standing a bit too close to the elephant, mm. um, and I have managed to. Uh, over the last 24 hours or so step back a little bit and see it all a little bit more in a little bit more detail
2: um but I want to raise something that's probably a bit dark actually mm -hmm. but it is something that I think about if this is going on towards if we when I say if this is going on Mm -hmm. if there are concerns about discrimination along racial lines and ethnicity Mm -hmm. within the workforce, uh, different treatments for different, you know, demographics, people, etc. I'm sorry, but I have to say it. What about patients? Mm -hmm. What about patient care? Um, And unconscious bias i've got
1: to put it on the table yeah oh on, on again if you actually look if there and i have actually had some time when i've looked at the data and i i will have to just put a little disclaimer here because there is a disclaimer in the uh trailer that we don't actually have any medical chat in this podcast yeah. but i think uh, a disclaimer to disclaimer as i think it's relevant because this is more of a societal issue rather than medicine you yeah. know itself um and you, yes you're exactly right there is there is there are studies out There, which are again some of them are contested, but some of them are pretty difficult to contest. That would suggest that uh there is a bias, a racial bias, uh towards things like but it's not just race. It's it isn't to say it's just race is that it would be incorrect, but it's not just race, but race definitely is part and parcel of the biases that occur in, for example, in oligoanalgesia, so not giving enough pain relief to people. Yeah. Um, and it does it, it definitely does exist and it, it has been demonstrated, but it's also the same with uh, so pe- groups of people who basically don't get enough um, pain relief are the very young. So children, yeah. uh, the very old um, women, surprise, surprise, um, and ethnic minorities. Um, mm-hmm. So essentially, unless you are a middle aged uh, white man, you're not going to get enough Uh, pain relief, or for for whatever reason, for whatever multiple factors that are involved, layers of bias and prejudice that occur, the only group of people that seem to get the best uh, care in terms of addressing their uh, issues of pain are middle-aged white men.
2: So, I mean that's it I mean that's important for all of us across the board isn't it that oh, absolutely it.
1: and yeah that was, that was and I think part of the conclusions of this was what's interesting is it isn't that it was just the white healthcare professionals that were doing this this, this yeah. was all of the, or everyone so it's, yeah. it's it's a prejudice that occurs in everyone that works in healthcare
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, you know regardless of the actual healthcare providers background which I think speaks to the issue as well the you know that, that bias is carried from you know the where we've grown up and how we've come to be and how we accept um people for who they are and how much kind of inbuilt mistrust we have for certain groups of people yeah um, which is which is again it's very ingrained this isn't something that can be easily addressed and no. dealt with um
2: but I think uh, you're
1: right. I think, I mean absolutely.
2: It is. It's across the board, and ethnicity is just one one area. It's not all of it. Um, and I think you know, it's down to each one of us to be aware of our own biases and to and to find ways to work on them.
1: Absolutely, really. absolutely. So welcome back to the Echo Chamber. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Salia Asan. Um, Salia. That was a bit of a deep discussion we just had, so yes. but we never really got into uh who you are and what well, you I know we had some glimpses, but let's start from the beginning again. How are you?
2: I, I'm good and I'm 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 a bit bowled over and like um I don't know, uh, flattered that uh to to be identified to be on Med Twitter. I always find Med Twitter I don't even know what Med Twitter was. Um, I had to ask my good friend Linda Dykes, um, I'm sure who, who we all know about, mm-hmm. um, and my, I had to ask her what is Med made Twitter. Um Twitter, you know, uh, absolutely no idea. I and mean, I, I, then I just, you know, put the hashtag on and, and started to have a look and then I had to like quickly jump off and I thought, well, this is <laughs> me. I'm not part of this. <laughs> I, um, so I, 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 I came, I watched and saw. And
1: <laughs> it's, it's interesting you brought up Linda because um, Linda is a mutual friend of ours because um, I was her SHO many, many, many years ago now wow. um, up in North Wales. And it was actually Linda that suggested your name to me in the first instance oh. uh, and said that she would be fascinated to listen to a, a discussion about your yourself and your background. So oh, this no, is dedicated Linda. to you, Linda, if you're listening. Yeah.
2: Linda Linda saved my career. Linda made me feel as if I had a place within emergency medicine and didn't have to spend the rest of my life as a locum just because I had a, a portfolio career, you know. So I owe Linda. A huge amount you know she inspired me and she's uh, right from the get-go and you know we sat down at her kitchen table and I it, I, it, it, it was quite something we sat I came up to North Wales I to meet her um, really feeling quite lost as to my direction um, I knew I was emergency medicine but I also had uh, an additional career it wasn't a hobby or a Part, you know, part time, these are two careers I was running side by side, take quite seriously, and um, within broadcast journalism, and uh, I thought it was a hopeless case and she just sat down and made me some mind map career mind maps and talked me through all the possible routes I could go. And I've still got that piece of paper. And I am further down the line of, of where we were. I've not quite got to where I thought I'd be by now. But, you know, it, it made me feel that I wasn't just, you know, just because I'm a bit different and I haven't done it the traditional way doesn't make me an outcast or not wanted, you know. And for me, that was massive. So I owe Linda a huge amount.
1: Yeah, L- Linda is great. Um I'm hoping to get Linda on at some point as well, um, because I think Linda has, she's another one that has, away from medicine, has a lot of uh, interesting uh, stories to tell, of other hats she's worn. So we won't get into the things that we know already um, because I'm hoping that will all come up and be revealed on a future episode. But um, yeah, so we have to thank Linda for getting us uh, together for this conversation so tell us a little bit more about yourself so you you've uh, highlighted a few bits and pieces already in the conversation you obviously mentioned you're a a, now a em doctor em middle grade Mm -hmm. and uh you've got a background in the military yeah and then you've also alluded to a career in broadcast journalism so tell us a little bit about that
2: so um I did my first degree in chemistry. Um, I joined the OTC Officer Training Corps when I was in uh, uh, doing my first degree in Salford. So, and I totally loved it. It was brilliant. Um, Not the chemistry, but the OTC. (laughs) 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 Um, But um, I, and it made me think about um, a life in the army. Um, But. I'm terrible at committing. And I thought, no, 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 I, I'm not sure yet. But my other, my other passion, right, right from an early age, right from an absolutely like when I was 10 years old, I wanted to be a journalist. Um, so I, you know, I wrote, I did all, all my work experience was in newspapers and, and, and radio stations and things like that as I was growing up. So um, when my, degree came to an end and I wrote to practically every single um, uh, news network and BBC rate local newsroom in the country and one said yes and I, I went to work for them and it, it, I just thought that's it I'm sorted I made this I'm in uh, but at the same time um, I also was at the age where if I didn't, I I was already a TA officer at that point. Um, and at that point I thought, you know what, if I don't go and try my selection for regular Sandhurst, mm-hmm. now I'll be too old and it will all be what if. Mm-hmm. And I I wanted to find out if I could actually get in. Look, I was born in Essex and I didn't have, a, come from a posh family. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't you know we weren't wealthy my parents were teachers hugely inspirational um and I just thought well let's just see if I can get in so uh and I wasn't expecting to get in because it's quite an it's quite a selective process to get into Sandhurst. there's a number of uh two two not one interview um period two in, in your looked at from top to bottom to see if your potential offers the material and I'm managed to pass it i was i was just thrown off i thought crikey i've actually managed to get a place and at the same time i'd also been offered a place or been shortlisted for a place um as a bbc trainee Um, they were pretty um uh very very sort of difficult things to get um news production traineeships and i just at the time and i just thought wow which which way do i go And at that time, a former um, uh, army officer was currently writing lots of incredible copy from Bosnia um, uh, for the Times, and his name was Anthony Lloyd-Jones. And I wrote to him, I wasn't expecting a reply, I just wrote to him to say, look, this is me. I'm a journalist. I've been offered a place at Sandhurst. Do you recommend me joining the army? I see you were in the army. And he wrote he I could not believe it. He wrote back and he said, "You know what? The army's brilliant. Um, do it and then get out and get a real life." So I thought, right, brilliant I- advice. I did. I took my place at Sandhurst. I had the best year ever. I mean, Sandhurst is it is known as the best uh, military training establishment in the world. Um, it was a leveler. It didn't matter who you were, where you came from, you know what was in your bank balance or in your parents' bank balance. If you could pass all the tests, and they were arduous tests, and it was a it's not a, a, a course for the faint-hearted, and you can survive those forty-four weeks um, and pass out, Santos um, you know uh, th- that sorts you out. That sorts you out for life, I think. And I. I was so super proud. I think it's the only thing I've done in my entire life where I had no resits. <laughs> no. The only thing. I've had resit exams throughout my life. I never, ever passed anything first time. Sandhurst is the only thing I passed. The army, doing army stuff is the only thing I've done where I've never had to do anything twice, never had to be back turned, never, whatever. So my plan was to then stay in the army forever because I loved it. And we deployed to Bosnia. And um, I I did join the Royal Army Medical Corps, not because I was interested in medics, but because um, they promised to deploy us straight out of Sandhurst or near enough. So I thought, yep, that's what I want to do. I want to go to the Balkans. So, yep, I'll join the RAMC. Um, And uh, the, the deployment was incredible and I, was taught all about the Geneva Conventions, I carried the Geneva Conventions with me, I had my, you know, my weapon, it was loaded, but I also had my rules of engagement and the Geneva Convention that I carried all, and it was was incredible um, to be out there. But what inspired me to move on was, uh, and I remember it so vividly and so clearly, that we had uh, some patients come, being brought in by my combat medic technicians. Um, they were two Bosnian men who had returned to Bosnia to vote uh, for the future of their country, and their homes had been booby-trapped by their Serb neighbours. So the moment they stepped over the threshold of their home, uh, their legs, they suffered traumatic amputation of lower limbs. And they were brought in. Obviously, I didn't call it that at the time. When I was a non-medic, for me, it was like, oh, my God, his leg's hanging off backwards. Um, And I was so, so utterly, like, bowled over and impressed and in awe of the whole entire medical team that just jumped on these guys in our... Um, makeshift uh, medical facility in a factory in an area called Shippabo in the Republic of Srpska and the calmness and the reassurance and this professionalism that they offered to these two Bosnian men who was young in their 20s wide-eyed and you know dazed and confused and um, a bit up on the morphine and I I, I just made up my mind I thought I think I want to be a doctor Mm. and I spoke to my boss at the time who was a major at the time, is now um, Brigadier and I just said, uh, Kev, I think I want to be a doctor and he went okay, I'll do your reference and that was it and I applied and um, I stayed in the army uh, for four years uh, and got my place at Dundee and after four years, I mean the, the army did try to persuade me to stay, they gave me all the best jobs. Mm -hmm. My last job actually was at the Joint Service Mountain Training Centre in North Wales. Um, But I thought, no, medicine, let's just do medicine. But I will, my plan was to try and return, well, my plan was to return, but the minute I became a civilian, because they couldn't keep me on for the full five years, I had Mm -hmm. had to be a civilian for two years and then go back as a cadetship officer. But um, I, the minute, the second I left, my passion for journalism came back. So, you know, my first year as a medical student was spent doing my medical school studies, but it was also spent making films. Um, I did stuff with Channel 4 and the BBC, and I just thought I found a way to make it all work. Wow.
1: That's, I mean so much packed in there, Salia, you I mean, in your uh, short life um, wow. already, you've, had, you, you've done so much. I mean, I it's, it's interesting the the, the the way that you talk about it, because some people, I think I would say most people, you know, they say, oh, we'll just do medicine, and that'll be enough for, for their life, you know, that's, that's enough of an effort and a commitment. But you're like, oh, yeah, do the army, do TAs, regular army, continue the journalism, do a bit of medicine, probably go back, to it all again. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was nice to hear they actually were like, oh, actually, maybe I've got too many strings to my bow now. Well, you know what,
2: The The first year of being a medical student was really tough for me because I missed the army and I nearly Mm. left to go back. Mm. I didn't realise how... I mean, I, I, I'd i spent like 10 years in green, you know, mm-hmm. even as a TA person, I was practically full time, you know, army, um, was definitely an army head. And I, um, you know, I socialized with the military, I did all my adventure training with the military, I did stacks, you know, I got into mountaineering with them. Um, and You know, my social life was with them and going back to medical school at the age of 30, which is when I did, when I went to medical school, um, when everyone else was about 18. and not only that i didn't mind that so much because i wasn't the only one and I did, and and what we were being taught was so mind blowing i was like wow the human body is incredible mm-hmm. um, does anyone know about this because this is amazing i was just like really wide eyed at what i was being taught but it was the rest of it and i just thought i really miss my life i miss my life in the you know uh in green and i nearly nearly left to go back
1: nearly Hmm. Well, I would, I, would, I would say that the army's loss <laughs> is definitely medicine's game.
2: Well, so, I'm still struggling to crack on with it. but there
1: we go. I know, but it's, it's, it's so remarkable how many different chapters you've had in your life so far already. And of course, the next chapter will be to finish your medical training and become a consultant. Yeah. Um, and um, I wish you all the luck in that, because that, again, is not an easy route. No. Uh, so uh, you know you, uh, i wish you all the best in all their endeavors going forward so yeah. for someone like yourself who's so busy um i don't even do, do you have a family as well Are you uh...
2: um i i have my partner my long-term mm-hmm. partner um and he you know he's not medic um, but he's a great support you know a huge support and, uh, and um sort of you know, for people who have partners who are not medical, um, and we, you know, we uh, live this strange life. Mm-hmm. And we have to, you know, come along for the ride with mm-hmm. our strange rotors and our strange timings and our ups and downs with the things that we're seeing mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, you know, I think they definitely deserve massive credit. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. It's true, isn't it? It's um, I think that's probably the reason why a lot of medics end up with other medics, actually, or yeah. um, other healthcare workers, because they yeah. have a comprehension of the stresses. Um, because it's, um, it's like that TV show Scrubs. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit in it where you know they're talking about priorities. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to have your life, you want to live it the way you want, but you know, the, the hospital and the patients always take priority and that can be a real strain on relationships Um, Mm. but I always like the quote that says look when I can choose I will always choose to prioritize my family my loved ones yeah but I it's not always up to me Um, and that's a very difficult line to um, sell to someone who doesn't understand why that is Um, so I commend anyone that can make it work yeah. So what do you do then? What do you do uh, when you get home? What's your rituals in terms of uh, kind of winding down from the stresses of the day?
2: So I will, you know, I will babble because it's like, uh, you know, it smells a bit confessional. Literally, you know, I'm not one of these. Um, I, I'm in such awe of those people that can finish a shift and then go home and I ain't got that stamina. Um, if, I'm on, if I'm on a string of, because I work in, in Bangor, I was working in an annualised way, so I would do mm. loads and loads of shifts in a string and then come back and do to London and do all my media work. Um, and because I bounced between the two, I felt that it's what kept me fresh for work, you know. Um, but when I was on a string of shifts, my guilty thing, what would I do when I got home at the end of a shift? uh pajama shower pajamas on and um what eat whatever was in the fridge because i hate cooking um and uh binge watch sex in the city
1: there you are so you've perfectly into my next thing so you, you used to watch Sex and the City. That was your like, indulgence, is it? And I my, still do. <laughs> my, to be fair, my wife is is constantly at me to sit down and watch that series.
2: Brilliant! And I'm so excited <laughs> the new series is coming on. And I think I must be the only person on the planet that liked the second movie as much as the first. But oh my God! I am. <laughs> you, you are it's not helping my case. It's got me through so much. <laughs> Having a bad day at work, half an hour of Carrie Brodshaw and her friends will sort me out. Yeah, me yeah.
1: But I, I am very similar in terms of the way I wind down. I have to throw on something. And I think I, I spoke to someone, one of my other guests about this, about how really what I want to watch isn't something that's uh, gonna have me on the edge of my seat it's something that's comfortable and I know that this is why I love sitcoms mm. is because I know that by the end pretty much everything will be the same as it was at the beginning so I don't have to like yeah. prepare myself for any kind of emotional uh, yeah. destruction um and that's why I always like listening you know watching um uh, kind of like silly American sitcoms um, you have so, name
2: them I've named mine what's yeah. yours
1: my one i mean i go through i have a, i have a whole load of them that are on perpetual cycle uh, okay. for me you know, scrubs is a, is a huge one scrubs yeah. got me through so much in the early years of my career yeah. and anyone who's not seen it who is a medic oh, I, yeah. I implore you to watch that show because of all of the shows i've watched even though it's silly it's slapstick it's set in america Uh, You know, with all of the idiosyncrasies of that ridiculous healthcare system Mm -hmm. that they have, it's still quite possibly the most accurate in its portrayal of the way people interact with each other. The colleagues interact with each other. We are that silly, absolutely. You know what,
2: I was going to say. I was going to say for me, because I I I grew up when I was at school. I used to watch Casualty, um, but I don't. I haven't watched that since I was about fifteen. But um and then i spent a bit of time on er um and i blame george clooney for the yeah. thing about doing em say <laughs> it's all his fault but um scrubs, scrubs is the one scrubs mm-hmm. is re- it's clever writing mm-hmm. it is so i think it's really accurate
1: yeah it's, i think they were very clever the makers of that show
2: because
1: yeah. um JD John Dorian yeah um, is uh, named after the the medical advisor to the show he's also known as John D um, and he was integral to the writing of the show and you can see that you mm-hmm. can see that the writers sat down and yes there's like things medically that they talk about which is wrong mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't matter because you can see that they've obviously taken this person who is a who is lived being a doctor yeah. Yeah. and written the way that people interact with each other uh, in, in a way which resonates and still does resonates um, with me today. So Scrubs is definitely one of the ones, but I also, in my, in my rotation, um, I like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I can't get enough of that um, and um, Modern Family, um, I also like sci-fi things. I, I love uh, Red Dwarf, for example, and I love uh, Final <laughs> Space, which is very silly, relatively recent um, kind of epic uh, sci-fi opera. I'm um, get my head with,
2: out of Sex in the City and start some other things. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I would, I would recommend. I would recommend, again, for that kind of easy to watch, but actually very well written, very cleverly done, uh, sick home. I would recommend something like Modern Family or Parks and Recreation is fantastic, uh, <laughs> and uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine is another great one as well.
2: I fell into Family Guy. I the reason why I fell into Family Guy was because of nights in Glasgow, yeah. Robert, Mary, <laughs> in the Doctor's Mess, in the middle of the night on one of the, on one of the few occasions where we actually got to go into that space or the night's room or whatever it was. And uh, there was a telly in there. And uh, my colleague was watching Family Guy and I was thinking, oh my God.
1: <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it?
2: But it was actually brilliant. And that's yeah. Family Guy and American, American Dad and my, my partner's faves as well. So it's a bit oh, of a night yeah. ritual. It's, uh...
1: I mean, Roger the Alien is one of the greatest characters yeah. that's ever been created. How left field is that, that's so crazy. <laughs> yeah, the, um, yeah, those are those are great shows. I've kind of, I've kind of gone out of, uh, uh, fallen out of watching that, but I know that if I did, and I think they're all on streaming services now, so I, I, the danger is I'll start watching one and then I'll watch another. But actually, American Dad, interestingly, American Dad wrote, for me, one of the greatest TV episodes ever. Um, which I have had on my DVR for about 10 years now. Oh, which one? Um, it was a Christmas special one where the, um, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's the one with the, the rapture. The rapture occurs. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So the first half of the episode is how they try to get into church. The church, um, uh, they can't for whatever reason. And then um, the main character, the dad and the mum, um, end up having sex in a closet in church because they can't get a seat because of all the fair weather Christians and um, then when they come out the raptures occurred and then he blames the, what, the the mum yeah, and then halfway through the episode all of a sudden it completely switches to like 20 years into the future because it's after the rapture and it's post-apocalyptic and you know Armageddon has started oh, and right. it just turns into this like, Mad Max
0: do you into know into this
1: weird Mad Max post-apocalyptic demons fighting the Antichrist episode, and it's it's literally as jarring as just Lower one it. frame change.
2: Just <laughs> after a busy day in the ED or whatever. <laughs> like your yeah. it's,
1: it, it's an incredible episode, but um, um, yeah. I have
2: that one. I, I was actually I was actually confusing that one with. And this is going to be really admitting too much. I was, I think I was confusing that with something called The Simpsons, so I'll have to. Uh,
1: oh, yeah, yeah, there's there's, there's a Rapture episode in The Simpsons yeah. as well, but no, this, this is a um, I'll, I'll send you the link to it when I find the actual name of the episode. It's definitely,
2: you know, like the, the people that write this stuff. This is my creative side coming in because my creative and my science live side by side, but my. God, they're so clever I because, know. um, you know, to write stuff like that that has got such longevity is incredible. I watched The Simpsons for the very first time when I was in Gorni Vakuf on my operational tour of Bosnia in 1997. <laughs> That's when I watched it. I wasn't even a medic then, I was a second lieutenant, you know, in the RAMC as a medical support officer. That's the first time i watched the Simpsons and I'm still watching it now. How sad yeah. is that? Well, it, it,
1: it's not really when you think about it because the Simpsons um, is yeah. a cultural phenomenon. It, I it's it, cult. it, it, I mean, it's fallen away recently for various reasons which we probably don't have time to get into now. Um, but for something that's literally been going on for 30 years now. I think it's I think it's 30 years if I'm yeah if I'm wrong, it's close to 30 years if it's not already more than 30 Absolutely. years. But for 30 years they've been pumping out excellent comedic writing. Um, yeah. you know variable obviously but some of the stuff that occurs there and very often these sitcoms and stuff, you know, The Simpsons already did it is a classic trope. in a lot of these. I think South Park did an episode once where they did literally like every joke they did someone said the Simpsons have already done it (laughs) and it's so true. Um, Pretty much any kind of like comedic aspect or like you know looking into the various archetypes of life in America and the craziness the Simpsons have already had some sort of take on it and it's usually the gold standard as well. And
2: anything that comes after it is pretty crass. Yeah. But, um, yeah. We, I mean, it's, so, it's so clever. And I, I you know, uh, I can't help but, because I write, I've written drama for a radio and it's really easy uh, for me to do. It's not like something I've had to, like, create because um, most of my drama that I've written is actually journalistic. So, because I, I, I'm such my passion is storytelling so I um, get really into a story factual ones and then I try to find an outlet and if I can't find an outlet through current affairs and news I will then you know keep the story but feel very strongly that it needs to be told and then try and find another outlet and and I've been so fortunate that I've you know been able to Write some of them up as as afternoon plays uh, for Radio Four, but to sit down and write something that people—I mean, I, I'm I'm in awe of all mm. that write um, hugely successful returning series. Um, you know, the magic of of, of having your words. Uh, Performed. Someone said to me once, "There's nothing more magical than seeing someone perform your words that you've written, and they were so true, were so right, so true." Um, and then uh, watching these, you know, returning series uh, that have been running for so long and still hitting the mark—that that's such
1: a talent. Yeah, it's it is incredible, isn't it? Really.
2: Well,
0: we'll stop that there. And that's part one of the fascinating discussion with Dr. Salia Hassan. There was only meant to be one more question in part two, but it went on and became a discussion that we felt that was worth publishing in its entirety. So look out for part two of the interview with Dr. Salia Hassan coming up on the Echo Chamber shortly in the next few days. I've been your host at EmergencyBot. Remember to follow the show at underscore the echo chamber and thank you for listening. Goodbye.